Hey guys, I'm Annie Allen, a certified divorce coach and RCSD divorce realtor, and your host for the Starting Over Stronger podcast, the show that's all about bringing you the practical professional help you need as you divorce and the hope that you can then create a life you'll love. I don't skim the surface around here. If you want to dive deep into the wholehearted wisdom of how to have a better divorce experience than everyone else you know by changing what you do, then this is the podcast for you. After a lifetime in dysfunctional relationships with those closest to me and over a decade in recovery, I'm ready to share everything I've learned and everything I'm still learning because I believe the keys to having a better divorce experience and better relationships to come should never be a secret. Here, you'll find episodes that offer enlightening and unconventional wisdom that is both actionable and sometimes even fun, like friends chatting over coffee. So come be a fly on the wall for these amazing conversations that will give you a fresh, honest look at how you can divorce well and then live well. If you're ready to do divorce differently, Starting Over Stronger is all about you deciding, surviving, and then thriving through and after your divorce. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Today is a big day on the Starting Over Stronger podcast. I have the honor pun intended, of having what I know will be an amazing conversation with the show's first divorce court judge. I want to start by thanking my significant other, Jerry, for making the suggestion to interview a judge on the show. I have to say it got my juices flowing, but oh, me of little faith, I thought there's no way a judge is ever going to come on my podcast. (laughs) But I decided to ask around anyway. And lucky for me, I started by asking family law attorney Mackenzie Higgins if she thought I would be able to find a judge that would consider that. And much to my surprise, she took that baton and ran with it. She emailed me a week or two later and said, guess what? (laughs) And so the rest is history. So a big thank you to you as well, Mackenzie Higgins, for that suggestion and making this connection today with our guest. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Wyandotte County, Kansas District Court Judge, Honorable Kathleen Lynch. Welcome to the show. And if my sources are correct, your duties include adoptions, guardianships, estates, care and treatment cases, sexually violent predator ad- adjudications, I never get that word right, protection from abuse, protection from stalking, paternity, and criminal diversion dockets. And you also preside over the docket for payment and non-compliance docket for supervised visit and exchange, correct? That's right. Our supervised visitation and exchange center. And I don't I, I don't have to do the criminal diversion docket any longer. So. Okay. I got lucky on <laughs> So what else can you tell us about you and what you do? Well, um, I graduated from law school in 1992. During that time, I worked for one of the professors, Professor Nancy Maxwell, who's now retired, but she was one of the family law professors at Washburn. And uh, so I got, to, got into family law, 
kind of just because I needed a job during law school and I like Professor Maxwell. So then I got really interested in that area. I practiced family law, I think for about 15 years or so. Now that I've been on the bench for 15 years, everything tends to blend together. So uh, after I left law school, worked at the Court of Appeals for a couple of years and then uh, was in private practice and became a judge in August of 2006 and uh, did the child need a care docket, which also had a lot of domestic violence overtones and custody overtones for two years and then uh, became the probate and paternity and PFA judge are really my main areas and probate encompasses all of a lot of things. Okay, well, very good. I have to say the first thing I learned about you when I started doing my research was a little fact that I thought was quite interesting. I think others might too. And it was a story about you and your robe. Would you tell us about that? (laughs) Well, um, I went to, uh, I I do the care and treatment docket, which is the involuntary commitment docket. Mm -hmm. And Wind Up Behavioral Health Network, who is our county mental health agency, invited me to attend a training on trauma-informed courtrooms. And there was this really brave woman who stood up and told her story of living with mental illness in the court and navigating the court system uh, as somebody living with mental illness. And she talked about every time she would walk into the courtroom and the judge was sitting on the very high bench and in his shiny leather chair and his shiny black robe that she would immediately, that would trigger her uh, mental illness symptoms. Mm. Her palms would start to sweat and her neck would, you know, the hair on the back of her neck, she would start to, you know, itch and twitch and all of that. Mm -hmm. And inevitably that of course, caught the judge's attention and off to the races they go. And she said, and I would end up in the, either in the hospital or the jail every time. Wow. I always wore my robe just because that's what judges do. We have robes and we wear them and we're kind of special because we get these special robes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the real reason that we have a robe is to show that we are impartial. We're not dressed like anybody else in the courtroom. That is supposed to be our cloak of impartiality, wow. if you will. And it, and it also uh, signifies a certain amount of authority. Mm-hmm. Well, there are certain do- dockets that you cover that that authority, that signal or that sign of authority can get in the way. And so with our care and treatment docket, when we're trying to get the person to the resources and the help that they need, and if you're familiar with motivational interviewing techniques, there's a lot of motivational interviewing that goes on in certain cases, um, or I would hope that other judges have used them to get the person to the resources and to the point where they're at accepting help where they're Mm -hmm. at. So I thought, well, if that robe is going to be such a barrier to that uh, very noble goal and cause more problems, I just won't wear it. There's nothing that requires me to wear it. So I just sort of hung it up. And uh, so I don't wear my robe in the care and treatment docket. And I have found that in certain cases that even the care and treatment docket, other than the care and treatment docket, I should say, it actually does the same thing. It kind of triggers people and it sets them off and causes issues. So I don't wear it on a regular basis anymore. I kind of pick and choose. There are because if the robe is the only thing setting up your authority, 
and uh, in the courtroom, then you you might have bigger problems as a judge. Than- <laughs> <laughs> well, good point. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> so it's in the trauma-informed uh, courtroom uh, education that I received actually has paid dividends in all of the things that I do in my courtroom. Well, I, you know, you had me at trauma-informed courtroom. <laughs> Honest to God, you did. I just think that's super cool and so down to earth of you to to look at something so maybe seemingly trivial, I guess, you know, but it's not. (laughs) If there's anything good that has come out of the pandemic, and I suspect that we could argue all day long whether or not when you lose 600,000 of your fellow Americans, whether or not there's anything good from a pandemic, it certainly brought to the forefront, I think, of a lot of folks in the judicial uh, branch that we are not being as customer service oriented or, you know, in the mental health world, they refer to the patients as consumers. Mm. And I think we could do the same thing in the judicial branch. And I think we have not been very consumer oriented. And I think with the onset of a lot of the Zoom hearings and those sorts of things that we need to start looking at what we can do within reason so that uh, perhaps the courts are more accessible and more approachable. Yeah, I like that. I, I've actually had a conversation on the show, I think, even with a um, a mediator who shared that one thing that they've experienced through this time is that they have actually found that to some degree, there's better communication in some mediated situations when the parties aren't physically in the same room together that that's a dynamic that maybe would have never known to explore, but they were forced to, and they suddenly realized, wow, this actually works better. (laughs) You know, during the, uh, I think it was the Carter administration, and it may have been before that, but they, the term shuttle diplomacy was because they would shuttle from one head of state to the next head of state when they were trying to work out things like the the peace accords uh, in the Middle East. So if it works for countries, why wouldn't it work in a situation where you where somebody might be intimidated by the mere physical presence of someone else? Right. I know that in my domestic violence docket, which is called every Wednesday, uh, the protection from abuse and protection from stalking orders, we have elected due to security concerns um, to keep that docket on Zoom for the foreseeable future because we don't have to worry about that violence in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about the petitioner and the respondent. So victim and alleged abuser leaving the courtroom, which was always where it happened. It was always in the street outside the courtroom or on the way to the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Those types of things, you know, that takes that worry away. Plus, we know that folks, especially victims, uh, a lot of times they are the alleged abuser has done things to put them at risk of keeping their employment. So they can't afford to be taking off court to be coming all the time. So they can clock out for 15 minutes, handle their business with the court and then clock back in. That's that's effective for them. also. It's a whole new world. And in a lot of ways, that's a better thing. So, well, I know just from our one previous phone conversation that you're a big advocate for social services or more social services in in the area and for courtrooms that are more sensitive to people who have experienced trauma. And and what I picked up on our conversation was that that includes trauma from emotional, verbal and psychological abuse, not just physical abuse. And so thank you. Seriously, a, a heartfelt thank you from me as a certified divorce coach 
with a clientele that's 50 to 60% under protective orders during their divorces. This is just amazing to hear that, that that's happening. <laughs> so, well, I have to give all kudos to uh, the Kansas judicial branch and the national council of family law and juvenile court judges. Um, they, the Kansas judicial branch, your office of judicial administration, who's kind of in charge of all the judicial education, uh, did a training. It was in the megatropolis of Salina, Kansas. Ooh. <laughs> for our, and that was when I was really exposed to the first uh, kind of mini training that the National Council did. After that, um, I was asked by the National Council to come to um, Santa Fe and spend a week. And it sounds really great. Like, oh, poor Kate. She had to go to Santa Fe to get trained. <laughs> But because you're using federal money from the Office of Violence Against Women, you actually sign in and sign out. Every time you go to the bathroom, there's somebody watching to make sure that you're actually getting the training. So there isn't any, uh, you know, clocking in in the morning and then going to hit the ski slopes or anything (laughs) like that. And I'm glad that it was that way because um, the training was just absolutely excellent and I followed that up with the continuing judicial continuing uh, judicial skills in domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Recently, it was 2019, so it seems like recently. It seems like I've lost a whole year. I uh, did the elder abuse uh, training that the National Council does, and um, somewhere after the continuing judicial skills, they picked me to go to the uh, faculty training, and so now I get to travel with the National Council and help train other judges about how to spot domestic violence or those issues in their cases. Because sometimes it doesn't, the the attorneys don't even plead it because they don't see it. Mm -hmm. And with no fault divorce, the only time that it comes up is if there is a custody. Yeah, right. Well, I, I appreciate that you're giving credit where credit is due. And, and, but at the same time, um, knowing this is your heart and your passion is what drew me to have you on the show today to have this conversation. And what I've arrived at, we talked about lots of different avenues as far as what we could talk about today and what ended up kind of rising to the surface is kind of an ask a judge anything kind of episode. So I talk with all my clients and just different business partners and social media and (laughs) kind of compiled this really big list of questions that we probably won't even get to all of them, but we'll do our best. And um, I want to give you some time at the end to ask to, you know, offer us anything that you have to share in addition to what we talk about. And I want to say, I want to preface these questions by saying that a lot of these questions are from people who have been hurt in very, very deep ways. And so if anything comes across negatively, please hear it from that aspect. It is not, uh, certainly not for me, any any judgment of the courts or of you as a judge, um, just simply where people are at. And, and, you know, when I say, hey, what if you could stand in front of a domestic violence divorce court judge, what would you ask her? You know, and this is what kind of came out. So, okay. So I think we'll start with the easiest question of the day, which is um, not even on the subject of domestic violence per se, um, and perhaps very broad, but I was asked um, when you're on the bench and a divorcing couple appears before you, what do you most of all want to see from them? Are there children involved? Well, I don't know. Let's go both ways. (laughs) All right. Well, if there are children involved and there is not domestic violence, because that adds a whole nother layer to Mm -hmm. it, 
What I would like to see is that the parties are moving to a position where they're putting their issues of their personal relationship aside and moving towards the business of co-parenting and being able to place their children first and foremost. And I know that that sounds easy to say. I am a divorced mom myself. My husband and I, or my ex-husband and I, were able to arrive at a shared residential custody agreement, but it took um, a boatload (laughs) of work Mm -hmm. to put the kids first. I get that. So I don't expect anybody standing in front of me to be getting along so well that I know they have completely arrived at the co-parenting position, because if they could do that, they probably wouldn't be getting divorced. And they wouldn't be standing in front of you. (laughs) Right, exactly. So there are, that is what I would like to see. Um, As far as, you know, when it becomes a divorce settlement and there aren't any children, when the parties have reached a fair, just and equitable agreement, I like to hope that when they're walking out of the courtroom, they're going to go on and be happy in the community and perhaps find whatever happiness is out there for them. If they're another relationship and that turns out to be a successful relationship, great. Or if that's whatever that looks like for them. I mean, I think that's what we all hope that we don't have them coming back either with the same person or another couple or, you know, right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Most of my listeners are women that are facing an uphill battle in divorce, like being under or unemployed, um, exiting a toxic or even abusive marriage. What words of wisdom would you have for this woman as she executes her divorce? And should she end up in a courtroom? I think you need to know your audience Um, and there are ways to do that. Know who the, you know, the judge is. Most judges have bright line rules that if you talk to your attorney or if you are representing yourself, you can kind of do some research about what their education background is. And so you'll pick up on those clues about what their bright line uh, rules are. And, you know, I think, when we got rid of no-fault divorce, that was a big part of the feminist movement so that women could get out of bad marriages. And I think it's appropriate for women to be able to leave a marriage or anyone to leave a marriage that is not fulfilling them as a human mm-hmm. being. However, no-fault divorce resulted in, uh, if you, uh, I know you know, But uh, when you do the research, women actually don't do as well in a divorce setting as they did when they were able to divorce alleging fault. Mm -hmm. So I think what women need to be able to do, and this is certainly what I tried to advise my clients to do uh, when I was an attorney, which was let's take a look at the position you were in when you got married. If you hadn't chose to marry him, where would you be now? And what did you give up to marry him? Because that has an an economic and a and a value that needs to be reckoned. Mm-hmm. Very good. So because by the mere fact that we are the ones that bear the children, a lot of times women's careers get off track and they never quite make it back from the mom yeah. track. And even if they did, they, they're still at a deficit. <laughs> they're still 10 or 15 years behind. Unfortunately. Exactly. And I think that if a judge is uneducated, if it's a domestic violence situation and they are not educated on domestic violence, 
One of the things that we know that happens to victims um, in prolonged emotionally abusive and physically abusive relationships is they become hyper aware and hyper concerned about safety, understandably so, and safety of the children. And so that hyper awareness, if you are not aware of what, how that abuse can affect a victim, can look to a judge who might be uneducated as she's not giving this guy a break. She hype, she is just harping on everything he does wrong. And so she's really the one at fault here. And for the parenting situation not working out. Yeah. So sometimes, uh, if that is the situation, you need to, If and again, this is in the perfect world where everybody has plenty of money to prosecute their case, you need to bring in someone who can educate the judge on why the person appears to be hypervigilant. Okay. That may even answer my next question, which was what victims can do to make their voices heard. Well, certainly, you know, there are some tremendously great nonprofit organizations out there. MOXA is one, Kansas City Anti-Violence Project, um, Safe Home, any of the domestic violence shelters, they can certainly, you know, provide an advocate for the victim. And even if necessary, sit down and speak to the victim about how to even speak in court. Um, because I represented enough women over the years that were unfortunately in domestic violence situations. And you could feel almost a vibration as soon as the alleged abuser walked into the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And many times, because of the way courtrooms are designed, they're designed for the uh, ease of the court. So not necessarily with safety of victims Mm -hmm. in mind. Um, you know, think of the courtrooms where the tables are right next to one another. My courtroom, because it's a family law courtroom and a probate courtroom doesn't have a jury box. So it's only 16 feet mm-hmm. wide. So imagine if you're a victim of abuse, how that might feel sitting in that mm-hmm. courtroom. So, yep, I've, I've been in a courtroom like that. So I know what you mean. <laughs> so those are, yeah. So those are things that, uh, you know, so they need to work on uh, what they need to work on, perhaps to desensitize themselves, if if that's possible, yeah. so that they are in control of their emotions yeah. in that situation. And I know that that's easier said than done. Well, sure it is. And first of all, for, first and foremost, because they don't know to do that, you know, and if they don't have a coach or, a, or an attorney who would advise that, then they would never know to do that. So I think that's a great recommendation. And, and on that note, sponsorship for today's show is provided by family law attorney, Mandy Rowan Pingle. Attorney Mandy Pingle is one of Starting Over Stronger's preferred referral partners because of her passion and integrity with her clients. She handles complicated custody, high-asset and difficult-asset divorce cases, military family law cases, which she spoke about on an episode in Season 1, and child custody cases involving abuse, neglect, special needs, and other unique family issues. In Season 2 of the show, she appeared again to share her unique and important insights on how to select an attorney you will love. And I love referring my Kansas City divorce coaching clients to Mandy Pingle. So if you are in Jackson or Clay County in Missouri or Johnson County, Kansas, 
and you're facing a difficult or unique divorce situation, you can connect with her at www.kansascityfamilylaw.com or her new office number at 816-683-9595. Please tell her that you heard about her on Starting Over Stronger. What should they do when looking for uh, or trying to choose an attorney that will get what they're dealing with? How do they even begin to make that selection? Well, well, um, you know, there are lots of good matrixes out there, I think, for people to look at. Kansas Bar Association has a great referral system. There are groups of who's who and matrimonial lawyers. Um, they still call it that. I don't know, you know, custody lawyers, all of those sorts of things. You can review those. Unfortunately, you can, I think you can call the disciplinary administrator and ask if this particular lawyer has ever been uh, sanctioned by the disciplinary administrator, if, if, if there was a censure and those sorts of things. So you could, that's one way to look at their ethics. Um, ask them, what do you know about domestic violence? Have you been educated? Have you received any education other than what, what's been provided to you in a CLE concerning domestic violence? Many, because many of the attorneys do have that. Mm -hmm. And obviously a lot of that has to do with just trial and error to some degree. I mean, you maybe have a friend or somebody that's made a recommendation, but you need to go meet them. And, and my recommendation to all of my clients, if I get them before they have an attorney, is to interview at least three attorneys and to trust their instincts about whether or not they truly understand what they're dealing with and well, don't hire them if they don't. <laughs> you know, and a lot of times victims of domestic violence have been victims of gaslighting. So it is hard for them yeah. to trust yeah. their instincts because they've been told that all of their instincts are wrong over the years. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, yeah. um, trusting your instincts or finding that don't just go to uh, Joe Smith because he represented your cousin because your cousin's case is going to be different than yours. Because exactly. there's no divorce case that's ever, there's no two divorce cases to custody cases that are ever the same. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this falls under the same kind of line of thinking, but what importance uh, does confidence hold in the courtroom? Because I mean, we're talking about people that probably don't have a whole lot of it. And is that going to cause their case to weaken their position with the court to weaken in some situations? I have to be careful answering that because of course I'm not supposed to answer a question or uh, respond to a question that might come before me as a judge. Um, oh, okay. But I don't know that I've ever judged um, a witness on their self-esteem or confidence. Okay. I don't know that I have, that that's been one of those things. Yeah. I can't recall who submitted that question. So I'm trying to think what even the line of thinking might've been, but it was, Probably just having to do with, you know, wanting to present as well as possible. I know, I mean, I've, ha I've had a client who I know uh, her outcome did not fare as well because of, you know, what we had talked about before, where she didn't have the advocacy to, to educate her on how to present herself in the courtroom. And, you know, she, she hadn't resolved a lot of the trauma from the abuse that she had dealt with. And so she presented very poorly in court. And she lost a lot because of that, um, unfortunately. Um, so I think that's kind of the line of thinking on that is just how, how important is it for me to present 
well in court is probably kind of the line of thinking there. Well, you know, the, it used to be about 12% of family law cases were actually ever turned overturned on appeal. And that being that of all cases, family law cases are very driven based on the testimony, the credibility, the demeanor of the parties. So mm-hmm. if what we say, most people say it's about um, 45% of the actual verbal communication, the other 55% is nonverbal. If somebody does not appear to be confident in their answers, that might be interpreted. Notice I said might be interpreted. Yes, right. Is not truthful. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, so there are sometimes the underlying demeanor and judges can take into account credibility and demeanor um, mm-hmm. just as a jury can when they're the trier of fact uh, and concluder of law. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, you know, as part of, I guess, sort of preparing for trial um, in the in the domestic violence divorce court, um, one person says, I was told to gather evidence, record everything. I made a spreadsheet with dates, times, photos, incidents, etc. And nothing mattered. He fabricated numbers, made false allegations, and literally got everything he asked for. What documentation or, you know, I guess what could have been done differently in her situation? What what happened there? What could have been done differently? Well, it's hard for me to say, well, this is what happened because, of course, I wasn't in the courtroom and it wasn't uh, a case that that I was directly involved in. But right. I suspect perhaps that we are dealing with the hypervigilance issue being interpreted as she's not giving him a chance to be a parent and she's pointing out everything that he did wrong and that as a victim of domestic abuse, when you're hypervigilant, it might be interpreted one way or the other. Um, Mm -hmm. And I question if they were representing themselves, whether or not they were able to lay a proper foundation to get those documents into evidence. That is a... In this case, I know they were not representing themselves, if that makes a difference to your answer. Okay. And then, so I suspect that perhaps you might have had a judge who didn't understand that the photos, the incidents, all of that was not being hypervigilant, was in fact factual because sometimes, mm-hmm. I, as again, as I said, I think that hypervigilance gets interpreted as um, a situation where they're they're just looking for anything to throw at the other side. Yeah, and that's a fair uh, response. I guess my question in, in seeing that question was, why didn't he have to produce numbers and documentation for what he was alleging. Uh, The only thing I can tell you is that he would have in my courtroom. Okay. (laughs) Fair answer. (laughs) I mean, it's, I don't know what state this might've been in, but you know, and, and uh, the Kansas Supreme court has kind of done a really good job of taking it off the district court judges. If you file for a motion for child support, then you've got to put your DRA out there. You've got to produce your income information as well as the other side. If uh, you want to modify the parenting plan, you have to file the motion and say why, and you have to file your proposed parenting plan. So the other side has something to respond to, because if not, you're negotiating with yourself. True. I think this might have been in Kansas, but it's possible it was Missouri, but it would have been one of the two, I think. Okay. But Fair answer. I, I think that's a good answer. Um, 
So I guess the follow-up question to that was um, that was submitted was, are you aware as a judge that abusers are continuing to use the courts to further their abuse and their unscrupulous lawyers are gladly going along with this? Well, first of all, I suspect there are unscrupulous lawyers out there or there wouldn't be lawyer jokes, right? Right. Okay. So, um, and certainly there are lawyers that have higher, higher ethical standards than others. I'm aware of that. I don't think that that is the rule. I think that is the exception to the rule, but Mm -hmm. yes, I am aware that there are uh, abusers who attempt to use the court system Mm-hmm. to continue to abuse the victim, especially when the abuser did not get what they wanted the first time. Yeah. So they will, you know, as lawyers are known to say, hang paper, file mm-hmm. motion after motion after motion. Uh, sometimes they're hoping to provoke the uh, the victim to snap and mm-hmm. then react badly so they can say, mm-hmm. see, I told you all along. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are, safeguards built into the system for that 6211b in kansas say states that if you file a frivolous motion then the court can order sanctions against you um i'm aware of it because of having practiced family law i used to tell the victims that i represented he's going to do this because he can't get his hands on you any longer Mm-hmm. He doesn't get that that obviously his needs met by emotionally abusing you. So this is now the next step he's going to take. And so yeah. you have to have a lawyer who's willing to file those motions to dismiss and request attorney's fees and sanctions. And it may mm-hmm. not happen the first time, but it probably will ha- happen the second or third time because courts are overwhelmed with cases. I handled uh, eight ex parte orders for domestic violence today. So mm. we really don't have time for the frivolous stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of evidence um, can actually be presented and heard? All, I mean, in what context as far as domestic violence? Yes. All relevant information is admissible. Um, But what I see on a regular basis, especially in the protection order docket, so there's no divorce case on file yet, and here comes the victim by themselves, and they don't have pictures. If they do have pictures of what happened, then they can't lay what's called the proper foundation for admission of evidence. There are all kinds of videos out there of uh, YouTube videos, how to lay a proper foundation. Um, It's accessible. We have Dr. Google out there now or you know, Judge Google, (laughs) Lawyer Google, Google, find out what you have to say. And what you have to say is, Judge, I took this photo of my left cheekbone um, on the day on June 25th at 1241 p.m. after I was struck by the respondent. It is a true and accurate copy of the photo. And I would like to admit that into evidence. The judge is likely going to ask, but has the respondent seen that? If not, slide the photo over. Let them look at it because they're going to the judge then has to ask if they have an objection. And that's how you lay a proper foundation for any documentary evidence. Um, another thing that trips up, what I guess I would say causes a lot of confusion in the courtroom. <laughs> Frankly, it caused a lot of confusion in law school is the hearsay. Mm-hmm. So if Kate Lynch says something on June the 25th and Annie Allen repeats it on Saturday, that's hearsay. Mm-hmm. Right. But if Annie Allen is just saying 
let's say I'm, I'm not offering that, that it's part of the truth of what I'm offering, then it's not hearsay. So that gets mm-hmm. a little confusing. So yeah. you will have people walk in and say, well, I have all these affidavits from my neighbors and they and I want you to admit them. Well, the court can't admit them because the neighbors aren't here to be cross-examined. Mm-hmm. So you okay. can offer hearsay for, you know, certain exceptions. Like There's a ton of exceptions. But if it's being offered for the truth of the matter, then the affiant, the person who spoke those words, has to be there to be cross-examined. Okay. And, and I know it's very frustrating for victims, um, mm-hmm. and, but there's a fine line between the courts educating someone uh, and at a court proceeding, you know, we're there to call balls and strikes, not to coach the game. So we can't tell people, you know, if somebody objects hearsay, I can't explain, okay, here's how you get that in because I don't do yeah. it for the other side. It's right. particularly vexing when you have a, uh, and it's always, it's the cases that the judges uh, dislike the most, I'll be honest with you, is the case where you have one party that's represented by counsel and one party that is not. Mm-hmm. Because it, it makes it more difficult because you you can't even begin the court proceeding by advising everybody that, you know, I have to treat everybody the same because the rules state that if you walk into the courtroom without a lawyer, I'm to treat you as if you are a lawyer and have been to law school and understand all the terminology. Yeah, that's a risk you're taking. I guess they know that, right? right exactly. And but I do believe that because of court TV and uh, Judge Judy and Judge, <laughs> Judge Judy Brown and sport, all those things which are not real courtrooms, they think that they're, somebody's going to help them out. Somebody's going to ask them questions. Well, that isn't how it works in the real world, unfortunately. Oh, that's good. Good word of, word of wisdom <laughs> and a good tip. So, you know, I guess really it comes down to what can be presented and heard is what's transpired between you and the other party. Um, I, we've talked a little bit on the show before. In fact, uh, some of it was with attorney Kinsey Higgins on um, what's the best way to present that kind of evidence. She, she made the recommendation that rather than screenshotting um, text conversations to actually do a screen recording where you start beginning before the conversation started and scroll through everything so that you get context as a judge, which I'm sure is helpful. Um, Anything else that you would advise as far as the gathering and recording of evidence that can actually be presented and heard? Wow. Isn't this great, listeners? We are really getting some incredible insight from this judge here today. And because I like to keep episodes under an hour, and this interview was a record-breaking hour and 15 minutes long in total, I have decided to jump in here and break it into two parts. So that's going to be all for today. But we will pick this back up next week where we're leaving off here with the second half of this extraordinary exploration of what divorce and domestic violence look like from the other side of the bench. And the reason we're doing this is because knowing this can help you know how to make the best of your appearance in divorce court, especially if there was or is any form of abuse in your marriage. So thanks for being here today to listen in. Be sure that you have followed, liked, or subscribed wherever you're listening so you'll get no 
notified when new episodes drop. Or you can set a reminder in your own calendar to be here every Wednesday morning. Episodes drop at midnight so that no matter how early you wake up, it's there for you every Wednesday morning. You can set your watch by it. So thank you for being here again. And remember that I am here when you need me. You can email me anytime at Annie at startingoverstronger.com. Be sure and visit the site if you haven't to see what more you can gather there for resources as you face divorce. And I'll see you next time for more help as you divorce and hope as you are starting over stronger.